Today's book will change the way you think about starting a company. Many of us believe that entrepreneurship cannot be taught, but great entrepreneurs aren't born with something special. They simply make great products. Today's book will show you how to create a successful startup through developing an innovative product. It breaks down the necessary processes into an integrated, comprehensive, and proven 24-step framework that any industrious person can learn and apply. We will learn the F word, focus, and how it's crucial to a startup success, the common obstacles that entrepreneurs face and how to overcome them, how to use innovation to stand out in the crowd, and it's not just about technology. Whether you're a first-time or repeat entrepreneur, today's book will give you the tools you need to improve your odds of making a product people want. It is a great pleasure to welcome the author of today's book, Over My Shoulder There, Disciplined Entrepreneurship, Bill Owlett. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. We're going to get stuck in here because I just want to say for anybody who's expecting to come along and get the 24 steps today, you're not going to get that from this show I, I'm going to go a different way, Bill, if that's okay, because I, I wanted to talk about the human aspects behind the book, because in between the steps, there's peppered in there the human challenges of being an entrepreneur. And one of the things I noticed right at the start, before the book even begins, is your dedication. And I think this dedication will talk to our audience, Bill, which are entrepreneurs, founders, corporate entrepreneurs, those people who are struggling to make change, some bring something to life within an old organization, often running into obstacles everywhere. And we're a different breed. And I know you say entrepreneurship can be taught, but there's something in some people there that's a little bit different, a little bit neurodiverse. And you dedicate the book to your four sons. And this resonated massively with me, and I'm sure it will with our audience, who wondered why their dad was so different from other dads but they excelled nonetheless. And something that I often see in dedications, including my own book to my own wife, is your patient wife who married a corporate soldier, but ended up with a crazy entrepreneur. I thought we'd say a word on that because that is something that's so often not spoken about that's so important to speak about. I think it's it's everything, right? If you don't have a home base where you have your your, your kind of... Um your center of gravity and you you're comfortable enough to go off and do that then you're not going to be successful because at the end of the day as you said in your opening we're all humans right we're all here we're not automaton you know we're not automatons we're not optimized to to you know just produce profit we're humans and uh so we need to have that base and that goes to the family right my parents you know my wife my kids and the funny thing is Aiden I wrote that dedication 10 years later and now three of, you know, two of my kids are already, you know, raving entrepreneurs, arguably more successful than I, you know, I was certainly at their age. And they decided that even if their father did it, you know, maybe it's okay. I don't know what it's like in Ireland, but over here in the United States, kids don't listen to their parents. Maybe it's different over there. <laughs> <laughs> no, man, it's, it, that's a worldwide phenomenon. <laughs> if a parent says black, they say white. But now, uh, two of them have gone on and just uh, you know they love it. It's it's they love the game and and uh, you know we'll come back to it. But you know I think there is something special about it. But we all have it in us, and uh, we can come back to that if you want. But that's the story of the 
the dedication and it, and it continues to this day. And this idea that, oh, you can't, you can't be an entrepreneur and, and not get divorced. It's rubbish. You know, I think it's important to have that kind of ballast, that stability in your life. So you can think clearly about other things and take intelligent risk, intelligent risk, informed risk. Absolutely. And, and that bill I found applies to the corporate entrepreneur as well. The per person in the organization who's driving innovation, it's the same discipline. And I use that word very specifically. You call it disciplined entrepreneurship, which seems like a paradox in some way. And Bill, I have a practice on the show of wearing a pin that I feel reflects each show. And this, as you'll see, is a, an octopus. And the idea here is there's a saying that talent without discipline is like an octopus on rollerblades, lots of movement, but no direction. And it came to mind when I was reading your book, because it's the same thing for an entrepreneur, you have to be disciplined. So maybe we'll share this is the F word I mentioned in the intro. Yeah, 100%. And, and the only two things I know in life, Aiden, this point are basketball and entrepreneurship. And there was a, you know, probably the greatest basketball coach of all time was a guy by the name of John Wooden. And he said, never confuse activity with achievement. And I think that goes to your octopus analogy. There can be a lot of activity. That doesn't mean there's achievement. And so we have to, we have to uh, disaggregate those two things and focus on achievement. On the screen, you'll see here the, the six themes, and you see the 24 steps. But above those 24 steps, they're color-coded. There are six themes. And if we got that across to our audience today, and the fact that you've gone almost eight to 10 steps in before you build anything, and we have this bias towards action, this bias to build, like you said, with the John Wooden quote, and we mistake that activity for actually progress. I just want to make one point, and then I'll jump into it. Uh, well, I'll make two points. First of all, look, entrepreneurs are not academics. They're not researchers. They need to get information quickly and concisely, and then we need to act on it. And so this little diagram here, and I'll make available a poster, and you can go to the website, disciplinedentrepreneurship.com, and I'll make available the, this nice file that has the poster. And in hindsight, I wish I was this smart. This actually was a thing of genius because it explains to an entrepreneur what you should be doing in what order. Um, and then it's, it also indicates, by the way it's done, that it's accessible and it's not a linear process. And all of that is so important. And I can say that, but it's not nearly as effective as putting a poster together and putting it out there. And that's what we did. And that's what's, to me, that's what's made this book effective. It's you can see where we are, where we're going, what we're trying to achieve at any point in this process. And you have the big picture and it's not daunting, right? Look, is this... Um, is this meant to be a fun picture? Absolutely. Entrepreneurship is really, really hard, Aiden. You know that. Anyone who's been an entrepreneur, it's really hard. And if you don't have a sense of humor as you go through it, you're not going to last because entrepreneurship is about absorbing and learning from failure. And if you're not willing to, no matter what you think, 90% of it's wrong. Um, and you have to figure out what the 10% that's right and then fix that other 90%. But if you're stubborn and you have too much pride and you take yourself too seriously, you're never going to be a successful entrepreneur. So this little diagram, as much as it looks like a cartoon, is incredibly important to convey the totality of what we're going to be talking about. 
And so I just bring all that up, and that's why I wanted to show this. And again, uh, we'll make this available on uh, the Disciplined Entrepreneurship website as a downloadable file of the poster, and I think you'll find it super helpful. Before you jump into the themes, Bill, there was something I wanted to share that I hinted to in the in the beginning, and it's kind of like there's a creativity myth that some people are creative and others aren't, but we're all born creative, and you say the same happens for entrepreneurs. We're born entrepreneurs. And there's three myths in particular, three major myths. One is individuals start companies. Two is entrepreneurs are charismatic. And three is there is an entrepreneurship gene. And there's a great graphic in the book about that. Maybe let's debunk those myths because I want our audience to really realize you have the potential. And just like Bill said there, sometimes we, when you, when you go to think about this could be a really big thing, it will block you from that progress but just go for it just like bill did with the book and then it took off you never know absolutely correct um look the 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 biggest problem to entrepreneurship is 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 that people don't get started they don't believe they can be entrepreneurs and this you know you can go back to physics to understand this newton's first law of motion a body at rest will remain at rest a body in motion will continue in motion once it's in motion. And the hardest part is, how do you get the body in motion? And, and that's why when we start with this, we start with the, if you come to our center, the Martin Trust Center for MIT Entrepreneurship, there's a big neon sign and it says, yes, you can. Yes, you can. And once you believe you can, we can teach you. If you don't believe you can, we can't teach you. But you should believe that you can because every person is born an entrepreneur. We wouldn't have survived if we weren't entrepreneurs. If you go back to the days of uh, Ro uh, you know, Roman Empire and Greece, nobody was dying on the streets you know, saying, I can't live because I can't get on LinkedIn to post my resume to get a job at, a big, at Google. They just got up in the morning and they figured out, how am I going to survive today? They made things. They traded things. They, they provided services to people. We are born entrepreneurs. That's how we survived. Um, and then the, the, the second part of that is that, you know, we need to debunk is, well, it can't be taught. You know, you're born an entrepreneur. What a bunch of rubbish. You're all born entrepreneurs. It's the system that takes it away from you. And then you can learn it. You know, the more times we have, we have rigorous academic research that shows the more times that you are an entrepreneur, the more likely you are to be successful. And, and any entrepreneur knows that. The first time you're going through, you're like, you don't know what you're doing. The second time, like, oh, I recognize some patterns. The third time, you get better at it. So obviously, it can be learned. And we're decoded here, kind of some of those first principles, or actually, we haven't. They've been decoded over time. And now what we're doing is pulling those together. And that's how we can teach entrepreneurship. And, and so, you know, People say, well, you know, I see these movies like Steve, you know, Steve Jobs, the movie, Social Network, you know, Elon Musk. You know, I, I got to tell you, those damn movies have done more damage to entrepreneurship than can be told. That's how you produce someone like Elizabeth Holmes. You know, it, it, entrepreneurship is not a, a testosterone, dressed in black, dramatic thing where an individual just does a thing and plugs it in the wall and it takes off. That's a load of rubbish. Entrepreneurship is a team sport where you grind it out just like you would with soccer, rugby, basketball. 
and it's not an individual sport. Again, research shows your odds are much more likely to be successful if you have multiple founders. And at the end of the day, no individual gets things done. It takes a team. So it's a team sport. The other thing that, that kind of, um, you know, is, is, is misrepresented in these things is, well, you know, Steve Jobs, he, he would whip people into the reality distortion zone and he could sell ice to Eskimos and he was charismatic. Again, very, very destructive myths that don't help to make entrepreneurs. Let me tell you, if you sell something to someone that's not a good product for them, they'll figure it out. And then you're in a worse situation than if you had sold them nothing at all, because now they're not happy. And you know, the best salesperson you will ever get is nobody you can ever hire. It's your own customers because they have credibility with the other customers. They're going to talk to them at the watering holes, at the conferences, all these things. They're going to get online and write positive reviews. You can have 10 positive reviews and you got one negative review and it kills you. So you don't sell through charisma. You sell through authentic value. So, you know, I see these things, uh, the, the, you know, these movies and, and people come to the classroom with these misperceptions or whatever. And I think it's really important, Aiden, that we debunk these before we even get started here. And that's, you know, that's what we'll get into with disciplined entrepreneurship. But we got to break those down first. Once again, I know people are chomping at the bit for the 24 steps and the six themes. But again, up front in the book, you distinguish between, you, you de de debunk the myths, you give a bit of context. But one of the things that's important also for our audience is to understand the difference between an SME and an IDE. And I'll link in our show notes to your article, A Tale of Two Entrepreneurs, which is an important article that you mentioned in the book as well. So over to you to, dis to distinguish between these. Well, let me give you the TLDR. That's a too long, did not read uh, acronym. <laughs> all, the, all my, all my uh, students lay on me now. Here's the, here's, the, here's the headline, is there's two types of entrepreneurship. There's SME, which is small, medium enterprise, which means you're going to be a small, medium enterprise and you're not going to grow much bigger. Or you can be an IDE, innovation-driven enterprise entrepreneurship, which means you're a highly scalable business. And those two, while there's overlap between them, they're both entrepreneurs and they're both very, very important. Um, I focus on innovation-driven entrepreneurship. So SME is a local barbershop, a dentist, a doctor, a hair salon, a, a restaurant, an IT services consulting company. They're basically a service com services company that's a, it, that provides a service to the local market. It, 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 it's, it's a slightly differentiated product, but not largely differentiated. You cannot export it to the United States because it's basically a service provided by people. Um, on the other hand, and those are great. Those are what are called non-tradable geographically distributed jobs that are fundamental, kind of foundational for e economies and societies. And many of the people on this may be doing that or may have parents who have done that. And that's great. But what we focus on at MIT is, um, and we take our own medicine, as you said, the F word, we got to focus, select what you're doing. We focus on this thing called innovation-driven enterprise entrepreneurship, IDE. And these are ones that are highly scalable, think product businesses. Now, product could be a replicatable service. It could be a uh, replicatable process. But IDEs basically serve much more than the local market. They serve a 
kind of super regional global market by producing a product that is has some level of innovation in it that 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 changes things that that, that gives it a uniqueness that other people uh, can't produce and haven't produced and 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 the beauty about an IDE is that it it can really impact the world in a significant way and and you can be asleep and your product's impacting the world you're getting sales because people are downloading buckets of bits that are your software your widgets are shipping whereas an SMA you got to be you got to have people working to get to to produce revenue to have input input impact so um that's the good news about it and IDEs are are really transformational to economies in the world and they solve our biggest problems um but uh there's a problem in that there's systems that end up with with uh, inertia to them excuse me for getting technical here Aiden I'm, I'm an engineer so they have inertia in that when we decide to build a product there's a time period between when we decide to build that product and when it will actually be successful between that time and the time that that product actually ships you need to make a lot of investment negative cash flow and, and, and you don't know if it's going to work whereas in an SME if i have a restaurant it looks good i say hey i, I want to increase my revenue i put another table in and i can see very quickly so so time and the the the, the time between um um trying an experiment and seeing the results is re- is very short whereas the time in an IDE is much longer i think this is a good product but i'm going to have to spend you know, 500,000 euros or whatever you, whatever it is to, to, to build that product and then to see if it works. And in that time period, you don't know whether it's going to work. This is often called the valley of death. It, 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 you, you, because the, the experiments take so long, you don't know whether it's working or not. So there has to be some way, and you don't want it just to be faith-based. This isn't a religious experience. But how do you figure out whether that's going to work or not so that you can come out of that 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 dip, and then you can start to have positive revenue and 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 have impact. So those are the difference between an SME and an IDE. And I I, I think we are focused on IDEs in this book. And this is how do you build an innovative new product that will change the world? There's another element here that's important as well for budding entrepreneurs. And and I want to again mention how you instill confidence in the people in your course and help them and give them an understanding and give them focus and discipline but this is also so helpful for if you're again a corporate innovator you say you need to distinguish between the three types of new new venture one is is it a new technology two is it an idea and three is it a passion and i would say in the in the, in the new version i'm putting together it's like passion is 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 not a strong enough word it really has to be an obsession like i'm passionate about food you know i like to eat food that doesn't mean i should start a restaurant <laughs> i you know you have to be obsessed with i really really want to solve this problem you know this is something that i feel needs to be done because it, there's a lot of you know, you know things you can have passion about so i i, I really in this in the next version i'm really talking about how do you get obsessed with this that you really want to fix it because if you're passionate about it th- there's so many ups and downs in it um so yeah and and technology i have a technology i'm i have a pro i have a solution looking for a problem that's what we call technology push um i have an idea i have a that's called market poll i know there's a 
there's a hole in the market, a problem in the market that we can fix, and I just need to go find the technology. So one comes at it from one way, one comes at it from the other, and they basically end up. Uh, a, a, I have a passion to solve this problem. It is is kind of like I have a passion to be an entrepreneur. I love the process. I see a lot of people like that too. It's like I want to have an impact on the world, and then they have to locate a technology or a, a problem. So the third one actually morphs back into one of the first two. Okay. There's loads more questions I wanted to ask, but we have limited time of Bill's time today. So before I get lynched, like you, you ever see that movie, The Ring, where she crawls through the screen? <laughs> so before they crawl through the screen and kill us, I better move on to the 24 steps. And more importantly, with the time we have available, the six themes. So maybe you'll give us that too too long too l d l too long didn't listen version of the too long didn't read i didn't know there was a t l d l <laughs> so now we've talked about kind of how this the, the importance of seeing this thing visually let's go in and talk about the six themes um and how how to think about this and the last thing i'll say about as we looked at this poster i want to make clear it's sequential but it is not linear it is not linear. By that, what I mean is you should know where you should be, but you don't just go from one step to the next without looping back to update previous steps. You're constantly doing that. And sometimes you might drop in at a later step and say, well, sequentially, I'm here and I'm going to I'm going to have to go back and fix some of the other steps. So this this methodology is not meant to be a straitjacket to prevent you from doing anything. But it's, it's giving you guidance on what you should do. Um, so let's just talk about the six themes now. The first theme is um, who is your customer? And I think who is your customer is incredibly important. And it sounds obvious, but it's not to entrepreneurs. And it's the number one mistake that, that entrepreneurs make. They fall in love with the product. Uh, they fall in love with the technology as opposed to falling in love with a problem. And this is the this is not something new. We didn't invent this. This is the whole basis of design thinking. It's Simon Sinek's, you know, kind of angle on things. Before you worry about the how and the what, worry about the why. But to worry about the why, carrying that further, the why for, is different for me than it is for a young woman, a 17-year-old girl in California. You know, you to, to understand the why, you have to understand the who. Um, you can go back to Procter & Gamble, customer-centered design, ethnographic research. This has always been there, and it's shown uh, over and over again that you should understand your customer in depth before you start thinking about building a product. Build the company from the customer back, not from what you want out. And so we have a very systematic way that we go through of market segmentation and then figuring out who, you know, who's the beachhead market? You can't, you can't, you know, chase 10 rabbits at once. You can't even chase two rabbits at once. Focus, focus, focus. You pick one market segment and go after it. And that's what we do, just like Jeff Bezos did with uh, Amazon. He didn't try to do everything at first. He eventually has gotten there, but he started off just doing books. Then you have to figure out how big that market is. Who's the end user profile? You know, and then you figure out, one specific real use case in it. You know, I talk in the book about entrepreneurship is not an exercise in strategy and generalities. It's, a, it's an exercise in specificity. Um, 
if it's true in general, it's got to be true in specific. So the first theme is all about who is your customer and how do you nail that down to understand, you know, who specifically you're servicing, you're serving. So the first theme of who is your customer, I, I was just listening um, to a podcast this weekend, uh, National Public Radio here in the United States, uh, and, th- and they talked about, they were having this in-depth discussion about influencers, influencers, these people who go on YouTube, and, and what makes this the ones who want to be um, successful differentiated from the ones who really are successful. And apparently there's one question that you ask them, someone who studied this. And I was fascinated. What's the one question you could ask to figure out if someone's going to be a successful uh, influencer online? They're going to get enough followers. They're going to make enough money from it. And that one question is, what is your niche? Niche. So this is what we seek in the beginning, a well-defined market segment that we can win that's not so big that it overwhelms us. We're not trying to boil the ocean, but it's nice, small, well-defined, and then we're going to land and then we're going to expand, just like Bezos did with books. He was not, he didn't call Amazon books. He, he wanted to be e-commerce, but he won books, he lands and he expands, or as Charlie Fine, my colleague says, nail it and scale it. I think the second thing here is, you know, this gives you enormous discipline if you know who your niche is, because then you know, who is not your customer? Like everybody likes to select markets and nobody likes to deselect markets. And so this is when a paying customer can lead you astray. If someone comes in and says, I want to buy your product, that does not necessarily make them a good customer for you. They might want your product, but they're not in your niche. If they don't have the same use case, if they don't have the same value proposition, if there's not work positive word of mouth between them and your target customer, then taking that customer could be a very, very negative thing for you. And, and, I, and I, 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 I do examples in class of this where people don't have the discipline and they take on a new customer. I'm a Lamborghini dealership and I take on uh, someone who comes in who, who wants to get their Volvo serviced and show all the problems that, that, rel- that relate to that. So just because someone wants to pay you, don't get mesmerized by the money. The third thing I'll say is kind of the, the, the syndrome of, you know, that people get mesmerized, large markets, you know, with all I need is small market share. You know, let's say, you know, I have a huge market. It could be China. It could be India. It could be United States. It's a huge market. And I just put that on a spreadsheet. It's a $5 billion market with, you know, uh, 300 users. If I only get 1% of that, my business will be successful. You know what? That's what I call fun with spreadsheets. There's no customer sitting in that cell of that spreadsheet. You need to know real customers. You need to see the whites of their eyes. You need to experience the use case, feel their pain, and understand what the solution will be. Not sit around and looking through some spreadsheet. I love it, man. I, lo- I love that fun with the spreadsheets. We all and we all do it. And again, a huge proportion of our audience to mention that niche are corporate explorers or corporate entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs. And we do the same thing. We do it to get the project over the line to go look, total addressable market. Look at the size of this thing. And instead of, as you say, focus and not boil. Out. We should talk at the end about the difference between this and how it applies to corporate environments. 
Oh, I'd love that. All right, let me just finish up the themes. That's the first theme, who, who is your customer? And that's the foundational one. And, and we see companies that sometimes succeed and they don't have a well-defined niche. And then basically their business is built on a foundation of sand. And that will come out if they don't really know who their customer is and know that customer in depth and dominate that market. Once you know that customer, then you have to really understand what can you do for that customer. You have to understand the use case. And again, we didn't invent this stuff. Uh, this Clay Christensen did jobs to be done. There's a whole bunch of stuff on this. Um, we just pulled it together and put integrated in a systematic way. But but once you know who your customers, you need to create value for them. And that's critically important to define that as tightly as you can. And so we, we have five steps here that we get into as to very specific kind of an engineering approach. How do you get to a quantified value proposition that you can uniquely provide for them that other people can? So that's the second theme. Who's your customer and what can you do for your customer? What value do you prevent, provide them? And then often my students go, oh, this is great. We're done. I've got a great business. It's like, no, you're not even halfway done, especially today. Just because you can create value for them doesn't mean you created value for them, which leads us to the third theme. How does your customer acquire the product? Because the value is only created if they acquire the product. This is what has traditionally been called sales. So this builds off things that I learned at IBM, and there's so much stuff out there on this. You know, how do you systematically approach the sales process? And let me just summarize it simply. It's who makes the decision and how do they make the decision? In any customer situation, there's an end user, someone who will use the product, and when they use it, there's value created. There's an economic buyer, someone who will pay for that product. And then there's a champion who will be the person who pushes for that product. Those might all be the same. They might all be different. They might all have different influencers and the like. But that's what we're talking about. And so you first have to understand that and define that. And then when you have defined it, we've only just begun to figure out what to do, which leads us to the fourth theme. How do you make money off your product? You make money off your product by getting, getting your, identifying the customers, getting them to know about your product, analyze it, and then buy it. And then, by the way, get value from it and buy more and tell other people about it. And that's what the fourth theme is about. And again, there are four very specific steps here to step you through that. And, and, and so now we're all the way up to the fifth theme. And now we build the product. And as you said, Aiden, up front, you know, the, I thought in Lean Startup, you're supposed to just build minimum viable product right away. No, no, no. And, you know, if you build product right away, you're, you're just guessing. And you're obsessed with the product. You're in love with the product. You're in love with the technology more than the customer problem. And your odds of success are dramatically lower. Maybe that'll get you some research grants or something like that. But that is not the way to optimize your odds of winning, of, of building a successful business. So in this one, you know, how do you, how do you build your product? We get into the details of how do you do this in a systematic way that takes you through that, that kind of depth of building the product with the smallest experiments possible in the most efficient, effective way to do this. 
And a lot of this is through experimentation work and research that was done by Stefan Tomke at MIT and Harvard. And companies have known this with agile methodologies and the lean startup popularized a lot of it. And then the last theme is, even if you've done all this and you have built your minimum viable product for your beachhead market, that's not the goal. The goal was to land and expand. And you have to think ahead as to what are the follow-on markets? How do we scale the business from there? So again, you know, there's 300 plus pages of this in the book that step you through this. I don't want to try to do it now in five minutes, but hopefully that gives you a fair overview, Aiden, and, and your audience. Well done, man. Well done. Yeah, because we were never we were never going to do it. It would take probably an episode on each of the themes to actually do it effectively. And I, it's highly worth reading the book. There's a couple of things that we still have a few minutes to cover. One of them was the difference between an entrepreneur and then a corporate entrepreneur that we'll come to. But there was two other kind of problems that you solve in the introduction of the book. One was common obstacles. Again, we'll have to go at a high level here. The common obstacles that entrepreneurs face and how to overcome them. And then the other was how to use innovation to stand out in the crowd. And your hint there is it's not about the technology. So let me just say as well, Aiden, if anybody wants to know more about the uh, 24 steps, there are free courses out there on edX. And you can just do Entrepreneurship 101, 102, 103. And you'll see lectures as we go through this. We're not a, we're not a for-profit business here at MIT. Our job is to create knowledge and to spread it to the world to, to, ha uh, to have the most impact. Not the great, greatest business model, but hey, <laughs> we've been around a while and I think we're still going to be around, but we're not going public anytime soon. I'll link to that and I'll link to your website where the poster will be downloadable for our audience. Okay, man? Yes, great. So common obstacles. You know, I think the common obstacles that most common obstacles that I see for startups um, and I should say entrepreneurs in corporations and governments and academic institutions and nonprofits is they fall in love with their product. They fall in love with the technology. They don't fall in love with the, the solving the problem. And that's the first thing I always say to them. The second thing is they vastly overestimate the importance of their idea. Ideas are a dime a dozen. There, it wasn't a novel idea for Facebook. It wasn't a novel idea for Google. It wasn't a novel idea for anything that Apple's done. It, it, all that was out there before. It's a question of how do you commercialize the, the some you know a, a good idea. And um, there's a great book by a guy named Mark Randolph, who, who was who co-founder of Netflix, who said that will never work. And he basically said, you know, no matter what your idea is, it's not going to be correct. <laughs> it's going to be 90% wrong. And, and the issue is you got to keep going forward. And how do you do that? Um, it's not about the original idea. You got to be able to let go of that. You've got to focus on the customer and figure out what problem are we solving for them in a systematic way. And then the biggest indicator of success is having a strong team. You know, do you have a team that has a common vision? Do you have a team that has shared values that they trust each other? Do you have a team that has complementary skills or is everybody a salesperson or everybody an engineer? It, think of it as you build a sports team. You got to have div different people, but they've got to have a common, they got to have a common vision and they have to be able to um, have shared values. And this gets to the question of culture. And I've written about this and there's an article in TechCrunch called Culture Eats strategy for breakfast and products for lunch and everything else for dinner. And, and this relates to how do you build a high performance organization? 
uh, of people who want to be there. And, and, and that's, that's really what it's about. At the end of the day, you know, whether you're, you're building a new venture as, as a startup in a, in a, in a big company in a, a academic institution, you have to have that shared vision that we're going to get to this point. And we call that a raison d'etre, the reason for existing. And it's not about profit. You know, if it's about profit, it will, there will always, not always, there will, there will always, no company ever just goes like this. There will be, at some point, the company's going to go down and then it would make sense for people there to go jump and go work at Goldman Sachs or this other company or this other company. And that's not how you build great companies. You, you have to build like a group of people who are going to stick together until the battle's won. And so that's why culture is so important. And culture is built around, you know, a common vision that raised on Detra and shared values. So I think the other, and, and I'll just say this, is the worst advice I hear given to, us, to entrepreneurs is never give up. Oh, come on. That, that, you've got to give up on everything. You've got to laugh at yourself and say, you know, I was so stupid yesterday. I just found out something new. And if what's going on with generative AI doesn't tell you that, I don't know what, what can. You know, whatever we thought was true about generative AI, literally one week ago, you know, so much is different today. And so entrepreneurship is this thing of like being humble, hardworking, you know, and just keep going after things, but realize the answer is not simple. It'll just come out. It, it, it's not a science. Entrepreneurship is a craft. Beautiful, 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 man. So there's, there's two last pieces, which is the how to use innovation to stand out in the crowd. And then the last one is that difference between an entrepreneur and a corporate entrepreneur. How to use innovation to stand out in a crowd. I think the first thing when people talk about innovation, they need to understand innovation is actually a three-dimensional thing. First of all, you need invention. You know, that's something new. And people vastly overrate how important invention is because you can laterally innovate. That is, you can take somebody else's inventions and, and utilize them. Steve Jobs was very famous for this. He took what they had at Xerox Park. That's what made the Apple, Lisa, Macintosh, and the like. He took the technology that was at Fraunhofer with MP3, and he put MP3 technology, and he made the iPod, and then he changed the entire industry. He took this stuff for the iPhone from other people and even said, hey, great artists, I mean, good artists create, great artists steal. And so I think that, you know, people obsess about the first part of it, invention, whereas you can... If you know the other parts, then you can. The second part is commercialization. How do you figure out who would benefit from this new idea, this new technology, this new process? That's the hard part. That's where Steve Jobs and, 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 and Google and Facebook, this is where they, they really excelled. They figured out how do you commercialize this? Because at the end of the day, innovation makes you money. Invention costs you money. A patent is going to cost you $100,000 or more if you do it properly. and But innovation makes you money. So what's missing there is something else, and that's commercialization. Who would benefit from this to make money? And so when you have innovation over here, you've got, you've got invention, commercialization. And then you say, well, that, there you go. It's, why is this three-dimensional? Because it's the connection between these two things where it's, we call it clock speed, where the hacker – the person who's kind of your product person has to work very closely with the hustler who's the one who's working with the customer. And they have to be able to get products to market quickly. 
And that's what clock speed. And that's the advantage that startups have over big companies. When I worked at IBM for 11 years, it really wasn't that we didn't have great invention. It really wasn't that we didn't have great commercialization. We were world, we were the best in the world at that. But what we didn't have was fast clock speed. And that's what big companies need to think about. How do you maintain fast clock speed in a company that's going to be very troubled with that because they have so much inertia? And you see this right now with OpenAI beating Google to the punch, even though Google had superior invention, superior commercialization, they don't have the clock speed. And there's, there's reasons for that, which leads me to the last point. You know, when I first started this job at MIT teaching entrepreneurship, which was completely accidental, I, I, I'm not a, you know, I'm an accidental academic. I'm a real entrepreneur. I thought, you know, it was all about, you know, taking those chosen people and making them great startup entrepreneurs and creating more companies. Well, you've heard that I realized soon that everyone's an entrepreneur and it can be taught. It's, you're not just finding those select super athletes and making Michael Jordan better. Quite the opposite. You're, you're, you're making lots of people. But then I realized, you know, probably a while ago, um, wait, wait, this stuff is so powerful the, to have the mindset, skill set and way of operating. Um, we can't just have entrepreneurs and startups. This is, we as a society will not succeed because when you're talking about things like climate change, like changing the healthcare system, you can't just have venture-backed startups doing that stuff. You have to have people who can have a longer time horizon than just my venture fund. They got to have big balance sheets. They've got to have uh, infrastructure and assets on the ground. And, and that's when it came clear to me that you know we need entrepreneurs in. Uh, in corporations, we need entrepreneurs in academic institutions. Right now, people say, "What are you? You know, what are you doing? Shouldn't you be doing a startup?" And I say, "You know what? In fact, I have more impact today inside of MIT on the MIT platform than I would if I did another startup. So I'm good. Actually, I'm better than good. And so we, as a society, need them in government too. So basically, way I look at it now is um, we are training." The, the entrepreneurial leaders of tomorrow. And, and we call the, the, what we teach them anti-fragility. That anti-fragility is a mindset. That is, if all the fish are swimming this way, I'm not afraid to swim that way. If I think there's a better way than the status quo, and I do think there's a better way, I'm willing to pursue that. So that's the spirit that we'll call the heart. The bird sings from within. But the, but the skill set is what we teach with the disciplined entrepreneurship approach. That is, once you do go that way, you have to be enormously disciplined. Like people think like, oh, startups aren't disciplined. Au contraire. When I worked at IBM, I had all these resources. But I, I learned an enormous amount of self-discipline because I had to at a startup. It's not the same. So it's the skill set of how to look at markets. And a lot of people in big companies say, wow, this is just a more efficient way to do product development. And they're correct. Um, so it's a mindset, a skill set. Once we start swimming, we see a new opportunity. Um, but it's also a way of operating, which is a distributed way of operating. As Howard Stevenson said, you know, entrepreneurship is the pursuit of opportunities with resources beyond your control. You can't control everything when you're trying to run fast experiments. It'll take you too long. If I and I, and and and, and uh, building a community is not just connecting to people on Facebook. It's it's building meaningful relationship. If I call you up, Aiden, I say, Aiden, can you help me? You you look at my name and you say, 
you know, Bill has helped me. He's not just a giver or taker. I will return that call and I will default to helping him. Uh, you know, look for reasons to help him because I know he'll help me in the future. It's a situation where you build a community of givers and takers that makes the entire community stronger. Going back to Metcalf's law, this is the power of the network. The value of the network is exponentially related to the number of quality nodes you can get on it. And so entrepreneurs understand that this means I don't have to control. I just have to have good relationships and I can get the power of a network that could bring down Google, that could bring down Facebook, that could bring down IBM. And uh, this goes back to uh, uh, Rudyard Kipling, uh, the Jungle Book, where he said, the strength of the pack is in the wolf. So a pack to be strong, a community to be, uh, a pack to be strong, each wolf needs to be strong. And in a community, each person needs to contribute to that. But if you are part of that, Rudyard Kipling said, the strength of the pack is in the wolf, but the strength of the wolf is in the pack. So if I now have a strong group of wolves, that pack will be monstrously powerful. And you give me a powerful community of entrepreneurs who are tied together in a distributed way, Katie, bar the doors. That's what, and that's what anti-fragility is about. And when you have anti-fragility, not only do you not fear change, because change is coming. You see people, fragility is people when uh, uh, they've optimized their systems and then when COVID happens, it breaks. And then people say, I want to be resilient. I want to be robust. Just keep going. No, no, no. That's the neutral condition. You know, that's the neutral condition. Better than negative probably, but we want positive. When change comes, anti-fragile people say, man, this is an opportunity. Let's go. The darker the night, the brighter the stars shine. And that's what we're trying to build. And if you have that, if you have that mindset, if you have that skill set, if you have that way of operating, you are an entrepreneur. I don't give a damn where you are. And that's what we as a society need. Mic drop. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. What a way to, to finish. I had a quote from the book. No need to say it, Bill. It's been an absolute pleasure. And that's the book there. The reason Bill's rushing off, he's, has his priorities right. He's off to pick up his kids from school. So I'm going to let him go. And it's been an absolute pleasure, Bill. Thank you so much for your time, author of this. And keep an eye out for the 10-year edition coming soon. And hopefully we'll have you back, Bill, to dive into the differences in the, in the two books. Author of Disciplined Entrepreneurship, Bill Owlett, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Aiden. Take care, everybody.